Good morning, church. If you open up to Romans chapter 8, please. <clears throat> We're going to continue in our exposition of the 8th chapter of this greatest letter ever written, in the humble opinion of this preacher. Romans chapter 8. Last week, we covered Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 reads... And it's a culmination of all of the first seven chapters of Romans. Incredible concluding statement that Paul makes, wrapping up the truth found in Jesus Christ and his death and our resurrection, wrapping it all up and bringing it right to the doorstep of everyone that puts their faith in Christ. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We covered that ground of truth last week. And what we saw there, just quickly, what we saw there is that the truth that is in that verse is that everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who is in Jesus Christ by faith, that they have no condemnation in their life. They don't have that now. They're not going to have it tomorrow. And never again will they ever be in a place of condemnation because they have been taken by God and placed into Jesus Christ in the act of justification. And there they are, secure both now and forever. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Then Paul continues in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And what I want you to see as we begin is the connecting word between the two verses. That little word, a little three-letter word for. Very little word, very important truth. What Paul is meaning by the inclusion of that word as verse 2 starts is he is telling us in a general way this right here. Verse 2 is connected to verse 1. You see that? He is absolutely unequivocally saying that whatever you do with verse 2, you better make it an exposition of verse 1. Because they are directly connected. Let me take that even a little bit further. That word for, here's another word that would mean the same thing. that Maybe we would use there more commonly. Because. So that the two verses could read like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because. And then the following truth. In other words, let me make it even more plain. That the truth of verse 2 is what makes possible the truth of verse 1. That is the flow of thought here. So that it means this. Because in verse 2... You have been joined to Jesus Christ and in that act been set free. Because of that, verse 1 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation over your life. That's the flow of thought. That's the general understanding. Now, let's get down to some details and look at the specifics. Here in verse 2. It says in verse 2. Let me read it again. For the law of the spirit of life. Has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. What this verse does. Is it identifies. Number one. What the individual. Was in bondage to. Do you see it? There was a bondage. Identified in verse 2, and the bondage was to the law of sin and death. And then secondly, verse 2 says, something secured freedom from that bondage. And what was it 
that secured the freedom? It was the law of the spirit of life. Therefore, if we're going to understand the truth of verse 2, those two phrases are going to need to be understood. It is imperative that we know what is meant by the law of sin and death that places us in bondage and the law of the spirit of life that brings liberation or freedom. We've got to know what those two phrases mean. So let me just give them to you quickly. Law of sin and death. What Paul is referring to here, let me state it, and then I'll show you why this is true. He's talking about the moral law of God. He's talking about the law that God gave to Moses, those set of requirements for living that are holy and righteous and good, the moral law of God. And what does the moral law of God do to us as sinners? What the moral law of God does is that it condemns. And it does it justly. It does it fairly. Because God has established a moral law and he said, live by this moral law and you'll be right with me. Break this moral law and you come under my judgment, my condemnation, the condemnation that my law demands. So it is the law of God that condemns. Paul explained this in detail in chapter 7. And this will help explain why Paul used the phrase law of sin and death to refer to the moral law of God. Here's why. Because in verse 7, if you were here during the preaching through that chapter, here's what we saw in verse 7 regarding the law of God. That the law of God does this. First of all, it reveals sin. Anybody realize Ever been confronted with that? When you look into the law of God, you recognize, oh my goodness, that's not me. I'm guilty. Law of God reveals sin. But then Paul said something even greater. He said the law of God actually provokes sin. And all of us, I'm sure, can relate to that experience. We hear what we're not supposed to do and what is the immediate desire of our sinful flesh. What is it? It's to do the very thing that God said not to do, that God's law prohibits. So the law of God not only reveals sin, but it incites sin. It increases sin. Not that it's guilty. The problem is with our flesh, but that's the result. And then thirdly, the law of God condemns us in our sin, and it does it justly. And what that means is that the law of God, here's what condemnation means. I shared this last week. Condemnation means that the law of God both sentences us as guilty and then determines the execution of that sentence. To be condemned by God is to be judged as guilty and the execution of that sentence to be carried out. So you can see why, first of all, Paul would refer to it in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, as the law of sin. But what about the law of death, the law of sin and death? Well, Paul also said in chapter 7 that here's what the law of God accomplished in him. When the law, before the law, he didn't understand what sin was. But when the law came, it says, Paul wrote, sin sprang to life and I, what? Died. So that, the law, even though it is holy and righteous and good, what happened is, is it produced death in me. Therefore, Romans chapter 8, verse 2, to call it the law of sin and death is in perfect agreement with the outline and the development with what he taught us about the law of God all through chapter 7. So what Paul is referring to by the law of sin and death, he's talking about the, the moral law of God that has a requirement of righteousness that we have obeyed and that law then justly condemns us. Secondly, the law of the spirit of life. What does that phrase mean? 
simply this. It means the gospel. It means the gospel. It means the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to provide for our release from the law that condemns. And that should make perfect sense because what else could set us free from the law of sin and death, from the condemnation of God? What could do that except the gospel of Jesus Christ? Nothing is up to that task. So the phrase, the law of the spirit of life, is really a general reference to the gospel that he has been explaining for the first seven chapters. Let me take that just a little bit further. Because it seems a little awkward that in talking about salvation, he would use law. I mean, just on the surface, it seems a little awkward that he would use law. And secondly, why the Spirit? Why not Jesus Christ who provided the sacrifice to free us from the condemnation of the law? Well, let me give you an answer to both of those questions. In Romans chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, Paul was teaching about justification. He had set the stage for how all of us are condemned in our sin, and then he gets down to the end of chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, and he is talking now about what God did to justify us through Jesus and why he did it that way. And here's what he says. It was to show his, God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Listen, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. You see, there in the third chapter, as he's explaining justification, he's referring to it in contrast to the law that condemns. He talks about a law of faith that frees us from that condemnation. Therefore, in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, when he's talking about the law of the spirit of life, he is using again the phrase of law, not on the negative side of condemning, but the other law, the law of the spirit or the law of the gospel through Christ that saves. So why did he use spirit instead of Christ? Because the spirit of God plays a work in our salvation. What the Spirit of God does is that He takes the work of Jesus Christ and He applies it to our account. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's a statement about the work of the Spirit and it says this, that every single person who placed their faith in Christ at the moment of justification, the Spirit did a work. He took you and He put you, He baptized you into Jesus. Who provided the means for your salvation? Jesus did. The Spirit didn't provide it. You're not justified by the Spirit or in the Spirit. You're justified because of what Jesus Christ did through his sacrificial death. But what the Spirit does is he takes you at the moment of your faith in Christ and he places you into Christ. Therefore, when Paul said the law of the Spirit of life, he is referring to the work that the Spirit does in placing you into that law of faith in Jesus that saves. Now, properly understanding those two phrases, the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life enables us then to understand what verse 2 is saying. And overall, here's what it's talking about. Justification. It's just another way of Paul summarizing what it it takes place in the act of justification. That has been his theme from the opening of the letter. That was his thesis statement in 1, 16 and 17. And he has been working toward and developing that theme all the way through the first seven chapters. And he ends it and he comes to the eighth chapter and he makes this great concluding statement in verse 1 that because of the justification, there is therefore now no condemnation. And in verse 2, he says, 
And here's what happened. That the law of the spirit of life sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's just another way of saying that you were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him and the spirit baptized you into Christ. That's what verse 2 is teaching us. It's all about justification. Now, precisely, two questions. You see, that's what verse 2 tells us. But here's what verse 2 does not tell us. It does not tell us who saved us, and it does not tell us what was done to save us. And what Paul does is he answers those specific two questions in the next two verses. He tells us who it is that accomplished our salvation, and secondly, exactly what he did to accomplish the rescue the freedom, the liberation for us from the law of sin and death. And here's a question. Let me set it up with this. The law of God, the moral law of God that condemns us in our sin, the law of God is his determined decision To do something. In other words, this is the way he is going to operate. He, as the divine God, has set that law in place and said, this is how it's going to be. So that we can say that if we are under the condemnation of God's holy, just law, that God has made a determined decision. In his omnipotent power that he is going to judge us, condemn us for our sin. So here's the question. What in the world is up to the task of saving us from God? Because that's the problem. We need to be saved from God. And so what verses 3 and 4 do is that they tell us who is up to the task of saving us from God and how it was accomplished. And what we're told in verse 3 is that God is the only one that can save us from God. And doesn't that make sense? What else other than omnipotence could save us from omnipotence? That's the only way it could possibly work. And so Paul writes in the third verse, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So Paul is telling us here that God is the one that has secured our justification. God is the one that saved us from God. But there's another hint here that's going to become more direct as we move along. And it is this. Do you know what we need in our salvation? We need to be saved in two ways. There needs to be, for every one of us, two aspects to our salvation. The first one is this. We need to be justified. We are under the condemnation of God, justly judged and condemned so that God's wrath is what we deserve. And so somehow we have to be made right with God or else we are going to face an eternal hell. And only thing that will save us is justification, being made right with him, being made righteous. That is a desperate need of our salvation, justification. But here's the second need of our salvation. We also desperately need sanctification. Once we are saved, we desperately need something that can help us to live the new life 
he made possible for us to live through Jesus. Both of those aspects are a part of the salvation work of God. Our justification that takes care of our guilt before a holy God and our sanctification that makes us holy in daily life. We desperately need both of those. And I am convinced that that is what Paul is hinting at. Listen again. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the last chapter of, last part of Romans chapter 7, where Paul painted this picture of himself, of this wretched battle that he was having with sin as a believer, saying, I long to do the right, but I cannot get it done. And the bad that I don't want to do, I'm doing. What is wrong with me? The point is, he, even though he's a believer, he has Sinful flesh that remains. And so he's fighting this battle. And the lesson that Paul taught us in Romans 7 was this. That just like the law of God, the moral law of God can never be used by us to become justified, to get right with him. And the reason it can is because we are all sinners. We broke the law. In the same way that none of us will be justified by obeying the works of the law. Paul teaches us in Romans 7 that none of us will be sanctified by obeying the works of the law. That none of us will be made holy by obeying the works of the law. So our salvation then desperately has two great needs. We need justification and we need sanctification. And what Paul is telling us here is that God has provided both of those for us in this great salvation. So let me read verses 3 and 4, and I'll show you that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. First of all, general truth. What did God do to justify us? He justified us through his Son. Second great truth. What did God do to sanctify us? He sanctifies us through his spirit. Now let me show you that. And what the package here, if I could just kind of give it an overall sentence, is this. That the work of your salvation, the justification and the sanctification, is a work of the Trinitarian God. God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in the work of salvation for you. And what the three of them do in that work is that they justify you and they sanctify you and ultimately they will glorify you. Let me show you that. The work of God the Father. What is it that God the Father has done in your sanctification? It says right here that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God the Father sent his co-equal, co-eternal, holy son to come in the flesh of humanity so that through his flesh he could justify you and take you from being condemned to being not condemned now and forever. Let me say that another way. What God the Father did in your salvation is that he condemned the sin that condemns you and he condemned that sin in the flesh of his son. 
That is a huge truth for you to get a hold of right there. God the Father condemned the sin, your sin, that condemns you. And the way that he did that is that he condemned it in the flesh of his son. That's what God the Father did in justification. Now let me move into what God the Son did by looking very closely at the phrases that Paul included here. And the first one is this. I'm just going to draw out a part of the phrase, and that is that God sent his Son in the flesh. Before you add in any of those other words, just see that. God sent his Son in the flesh, meaning Jesus Christ, what did he do for your salvation? He left heaven as the co-equal, co-eternal second member of the triune God, and he entered into humanity in a very real way. He actually joined his divine nature with a human nature. He became a human in every way, truly, fully, flesh and blood human. So what this is pointing out is that the first thing that Jesus did is that he put on, made himself, joined his divine nature with humanity. But now let me show you what it doesn't say, and then I'll make the next point. Paul did not say that God sent his own son in the likeness of flesh. That would be a totally different statement than in the likeness of sinful flesh. And here's the difference. In the likeness of flesh would mean not real flesh, but just kind of like it. And in fact, in Paul's day in the first century, there was a belief being promoted that that is exactly what Jesus Christ was. He was an apparition. He wasn't real substance. When he walked on the sand, he didn't leave any footprints. You couldn't touch him. He was not really there. He was just a vision Why would the enemy want to promote that doctrine? Here's why. You take the flesh out of Jesus, all of us are still going to hell. Plain and simple. You take the flesh out of Jesus, we are bound for hell hopelessly. Because it was in the flesh that we sinned, found guilty, and it was in the flesh that Jesus came to take care of sin. So Paul did not say that Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. He came in the flesh, in the real flesh. So, the humanity of Jesus. But let me show you the second truth here. This is also talking about the holiness of Jesus. Because the word likeness is the modifier to sinful. So that God the Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Meaning, Not really sinful, just like it. In other words, Jesus was a perfect human without sin. That's what it means. It means that Jesus was fully human, but what he didn't have that you and I have is a sin nature. He was not conceived or born With a sin nature. You see, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, He made them in the human flesh without sin. And it was at the fall that they developed, owned a sin nature so that all of their subsequent posterity, all of the rest of the human race, you and I, were conceived in sin with a sin nature, born with a sin nature, And live our life here on earth with that sin nature. But not Jesus. Because he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was void of that sin nature. So that he was conceived. Here's how it happened. He was conceived in a different way. He wasn't conceived by a sinful man. It was the Holy Spirit of God 
who conceived him in the womb of Mary, his flesh there, so that his flesh was sinless flesh, so that he was conceived sinless, and he was born sinless, and he lived a completely sinless life, so that he perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law of God so that he could come to the end of his life and climb that hill outside of Jerusalem, dragging the cross there and lay down on it and let that flesh be nailed, that holy, sinless flesh be nailed there so that he didn't have to pay for his own sin, but so that the Father could take all of the sins of humanity and place them on his sinless son and in that one sacrifice satisfy his wrath totally and completely once and for all for all of the sins of humanity yours and mine in that hill outside of Jerusalem on that cross that's what it means that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. But then look at the next three words. And for sin. What those three words mean? It's a Greek phrase that Paul used to translate a Hebrew phrase. In Leviticus and Numbers. A phrase that referred to the sin offering. Paul reached into the Old Testament Hebrew. He borrowed that phrase referring to the sin offering, the offering of atonement. And he carried it over, translated it into the Greek, so that what the statement, we could reword it like this. Here's what it means. That God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be the offering for sin or to be the sacrifice for sin. It includes the idea of an atoning sacrifice. So here's what that means. It means that it was in the person of Jesus Christ that the Holy Father who has set up a moral law, a righteous requirement for humanity and has said that that law being broken will bring death. Physical death and separation from me forever. And so what God did is he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering for sin so that here is what he could do. He could condemn the sin that condemned you and he could condemn it in the flesh of his son. So you know what that means, church? It means your sin is absolutely, totally been condemned. And if you placed your faith in Jesus, it can never condemn you again. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God has condemned your sin start to finish once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. And he could now no more condemn you again if you have faith in Jesus. He could now no more condemn you again than he could condemn his own son. That's how free you are. That's how total and complete and eternal your salvation, your justification is. It's because God the Father sent the Holy Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And in that sinful flesh, he took your sin and he put it on his son. And then he took the cup of his wrath and he dumped it. Every last drop upon the sun and the sun spread his arms and laid himself out and he drank to the very last drop all of the wrath of God for you and for me so that there is no more left for us. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation. That's why 
You cannot go from being saved to being unsaved. It's a ridiculous impossibility. Your sin is done, condemned entirely and eternally in the person of Jesus Christ if you've placed your faith in Christ and been justified. If you haven't, you're condemned. You're condemned right now, this moment, under the wrath of God. And there is no scarier place to be in the universe than that right there. But why be there? Why would you want to be there? It has all been done. And you can't do anything to earn it or work for it. It is a total gift to you. If you'll just put your faith in Jesus and receive it. So what has God the Son done for your salvation? He came as a human. Number two, he came as a holy human. And number three, he died a sacrificial death and condemned your sin in his flesh. Now, one more statement here. One more verse. Don't tune out. Don't miss this. It says in verse 4 that God did that, and here's why. In order that. Do you understand the connection? God did the truth of verse 3 in order that this could happen, the truth of verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Take the first half of that statement. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. A part of what that means is justification. All that I've just been explaining. That in Jesus, the full righteous requirement of the law was met. So that you and I don't have to meet it. It's been met. But there is something else here. Because the end of the verse says this. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see right there, Paul is not now talking about something that Jesus did. He's talking about something the believer does. Do you see it? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a believer. He's talking about somebody that's been justified by the work of Jesus, by the salvation that Jesus provides. And what is true about that person? They walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, if Paul would have stopped in the middle of verse 4 and said that God did all that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, fulfilled in us, period, and ended, then I would say, yep, all he's talking about there is justification. That's it. But that's not where he ended. He makes a bridge statement. This is a critical moment in the letter to the Roman church. He is making a bridge statement at the end of verse 4 that is going to now take him from the previous seven chapters and the subject of justification over into the subject of sanctification. 
Remember, I told you that there is two parts of the work of salvation that we need. We need to be justified desperately, but we also desperately, once we've been justified, need to be sanctified. And what Paul is beginning to point to here is that God has done both of those. He's justified us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has also done something so that our sanctification happens. And that is being pointed to right here who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Just look at the word walk for a minute. What does that mean? It is referring to a lifestyle, a way of living. The way a person walks, it is their mode of operation. It is their direction in life. And what Paul is saying here is that the life of the believer... Listen carefully that the life of the believer is to be a life that is being lived in some manner that is in obedience to, is in alignment to the word of God. You see, we're not off the hook because we've been justified. We just then can't boot the law of God out and say it has nothing to do with us anymore. No, it can't sanctify, justify us. And no, it can't sanctify us. What then is our relationship to it? Our relationship to it is that we're to be walking a direction, walking a life that points to or is oriented around the truth of the word of God. We are to be people who walk not according to the flesh, the ways of the sinful nature, but who walk according to the Spirit. You see, let me say that another way. This is the way it makes better sense for me. That Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law in his life. I mean, what he did... Every one of the details of God's law was perfectly fulfilled in his life on earth. What we are being told here is that our life is to be in conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. Not meaning that every single detail of the law we absolutely have to obey or we don't make it. That's not what it's saying. Look very closely. Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement, singular, not requirements, plural, not every single detail of the law has to be fulfilled in us, obeyed by us, but it is a singular statement, meaning this. He's talking about the general overall principle of the law, meaning that your walk, your lifestyle is to be in the direction of, not in the perfection of, but in the direction of the truth of God's word. So that as you're moving through your life, as a believer, that what you are to be doing is you're to be on the path of God's truth and you're going to be moving in the direction as a follower of Christ, modeling your life after his life, the perfect fulfillment of the law. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. Are you going to stumble and fall? Yes. But it's not that you're on the path and you're off the path. It's that you stumble and fall and that you get back up and the general orientation of your life is toward the singular overall requirement of the law, the person of Jesus Christ. You are moving toward him, becoming like him. Now, let me bring that down to a point, a really critical point. In fact, I believe the most critical point I'm going to tell you this morning, that everything in these three verses is moving to this one reality right here. And here it is, that the ultimate goal of God in sending his son for you was to make 
you holy. The ultimate goal of God was not to remove your sin and save you from hell. That's the immediate result of justification. The ultimate goal, Paul is telling us here, it is undeniable from the way that the language flows. Opening up there in verse 4, in order that, all, in other words, all of this was done in order that what the end result would be was a follower that was walking according to God's truth. Said another way, living a life of holiness. That's God's plan. His ultimate plan for you. Now let me just give you three concluding statements then based upon that truth. And the first one I've mentioned a few times and it is this. God sent his Holy Son to the cross to make you his holy child. Let me say that again. God sent his holy Son to make you his holy child. Second truth, that holiness is a life that is confirmed Conforming, I-N-G, conforming to the life of Christ. That's what holiness means. It is a life that following justification from that point forward through sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. Now, let me make that very specific with some statements here. It's a walk, remember? It's a walk that then pictures progress So let's just say you've been a believer for a year. You've been justified for a year. Here's what it means for you. Just a few of the things. I mean, this could go on and on, but here's a few of the things it means. It means the holiness issue means that your speech is going to be more like Jesus today than it was a year ago. That's what it means. It means that your thought life is going to be more like Jesus than it was a year ago. It means that the desires of your heart, the things that you really long for, are going to be more like Jesus' heart than they were a year ago. It means that there is going to be more of Jesus' compassion in you as you deal with other people than there was a year ago. It means that you are going to be more forgiving to the people that wrong you than you were a year ago. That's what holiness, a growth in holiness, a conforming to the image of Christ means. It means that you understand your need of prayer this year more than you did a year ago. It means, husbands, holiness means this to you, husbands. It means that you are loving your wife today more sacrificially as Christ loved the church than you were loving her a year ago. Fathers, here's what holiness means to you. It means that you are more intentionally stewarding your responsibility to disciple your kids this year than you were a year ago. Disciples, all followers of Christ, a growth in holiness means this to you. It means that right now, this year, you are more committed and engaged in taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost people in your sphere of influence than you were 12 months ago. That's what holiness means. That's what the growth in conformity to Jesus Christ means. It means that you care less about the material things of this world right now than you did a year ago. And we could just add and add and add. You see, the purpose for God sending his son in the likeness of 
sinful flesh and for sin. Was it to justify you? Yes. But the ultimate goal, the great goal, was so that you could walk not according to the flesh in this life, but according to the Spirit. So there needs to be this conforming into the image. And then here's the third truth that I'll close with. For those who are truly saved, oh, hear me out, church. Please tune your ears and your hearts into this. It means this. For those who are truly saved, increasing holiness is both mandatory and guaranteed for every true follower of Christ. Why is that so? It's because of this truth that the God who began a good work in you, that God has said this, I'm going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning, there is going to be the work of God in your life growing you in Christ-like holiness as you walk the Christian life. And how has God made that possible? Through His Holy Spirit that comes to dwell within. So here's the hard question. Maybe not fun to hear, but you're Eternity depends upon your answer. As you look at your life and evaluate the reality of your condition, if you've been a believer for a year or three years or five years, and you would say, you know what? I am no more holy today than I was five years ago. Here's the hard reality that you need to consider. Are you saved? Are you truly saved? I am convinced, this is not an indictment upon anybody here, but I'm convinced that there is a percentage, a considerable percentage, I'm not going to put any numbers on it, but in the American church of people who say they are followers of Christ that are not even justified. And the reality, the diagnostic proof of that is they are not changing at And if you're saved, the triune God is at work in you. And you can't help but not be changed. And if you're not changed, then the triune God is not performing the work of salvation. That sanctifying work in you. So you need to ask the hard question. Am I truly truly saved. Some of us will be moving faster. I'm not talking about the speed of your progress. But we need to do what the Scripture says and we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. You know what? I was telling you last Sunday, praying, praying a a couple weeks ago at a night of worship we had here, led by the Lord, felt like to pray. You know, the great need of our country is not politics. That's not going to save this country. Regardless of who gets in the White House, it's not going to save this country. You know what the only thing that's going to save this country is? Another great awakening. Another revival that sweeps over this land and changes people's hearts one by one so that there is a groundswell of a love for God and His ways that then infects everything about our culture, our school system, and our marketplace, and the halls of our government, and the judicial uh, branches of our government, our courtrooms. That's what's going to have to happen to save this country from coming under the sure judgment of God for its godlessness. 
And do you know what is true of all revivals like that? They start in the church. They start in the church, and here's how it happens. First of all, there is a revealing. What happens is, is that the Spirit of God begins to work on the hearts of the people in the church who claim Christ and shows them they are not really saved. And the second act of revival, study them throughout history, is that those people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They realize their condition and they truly surrender and repent and get right with God. And then the third aspect, and not until those two things happen, does the third aspect happen. And then the third aspect is they go out into a lost world and they change it for Jesus Christ. That's what's got to happen. So I'm just, I'm just saying, let's, let's let revival happen right here. Let's examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Is our life changing through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. If there is no fruit and no change, get on your face before God and get that issue settled. Are you saved or are you not? Give it no rest because it is the most critical reality, most critical need of your life. And then if you are, here's the challenge. If you know that God sent his holy son to the cross to make you his holy child, how much effort should you give to living a holy life? I mean, that's, folks, that's it. That's it. You say, no, wait a minute, Brad. Witnessing is it. Let me challenge you with something here. We had an incredible multiply conference here last night being share the concept of our when we're saved, we are automatically signed up to be fishers of men. You cannot shirk that. It's your, it's your responsibility. It's not for the preacher. It's for the follower. Jesus said, come and I'll make you fishers of men. But let me show you something here. There's a statement in the word of God that I used to misunderstood. I think I have a much better understanding of it now. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I used to think that meant only, man, if I'm not holy, I'm not going to see the Lord. Let me give you another meaning. A profound me- meaning that is, points to the desperate need of a lost world. If we're not holy, they're not going to see Jesus. If we are not holy as the church, they are not going to see Jesus. And they are not going to change if they're only seeing us. Because we are not motivational to change anybody. Who wants to be like Brad, not living in the power of the Spirit? Ah, sick, forget it. But if I am living in the power of the Holy Spirit so that my life is like Jesus, that's what Jesus meant when he said, greater things are you going to do than even I've done because my spirit's going to be in you. And I'm not going to just be in one place like I was when I was walking around Palestine in sandals. I'm going to be all over the globe. Wherever my people are, I'm going to be there. And the world is going to look at them and see my holiness. And that's going to attract the world to say, I want what you've got. Without holiness, no one is going to see the Lord. How important then in the mission of God is the holiness of his people. Let's pray. Father, oh, God, you convicted me this week in preparing. And I'm glad that you did. And I'm thankful that there's no condemnation in the conviction. Thank you, Lord. 
I'm going to believe that you're doing what I ask you to do at the beginning of this message, that you take your truth as only you can do through your spirit and apply it perfectly right to the hearts of those who are hearing whatever it is that they need. So I believe that you've done that. And now, Lord, we need to respond so that we're not just hearers of the word who go away and forget what we've heard, but we are doers of the word who walk not according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And I'm asking you that you do that work. You do that work in those here who are believers. God, give us the power of your spirit and show us where we need to pursue holiness. And then, Father, for those here that are claiming the name of Christ, that are not truly saved, in your gentlemanly way, would you pull back the blinders and show them their desperate need and draw them to your son and to the place of faith and surrender so that they would be justified baptized into Christ with the Spirit dwelling within, beginning the work of sanctification to make them holy. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship Him. As always, the altars are open.